Talk. This is Democracy Now. And I want to share this for our, all the people who, since the dictatorship, have been fighting uh, to build a better democracy in Argentina. And, uh, and they keep on fighting. And, uh, well, I think democracy is something that we need to, well, it's, it, we need to keep on fighting for. Argentina 1985. That's the name of a remarkable new film about the trial of the Juntas, the civilian court that prosecuted Argentina's former military leaders for brutal crimes committed during the U.S.-backed right-wing military dictatorship. The film just won a Golden Globe and is shortlisted for an Oscar. We'll speak to the film's director, Santiago Mitre, and Luis Moreno Ocampo, who prosecuted the Argentine generals and later became the first prosecutor of the International Criminal Court. The movie's about, about dictatorships in Argentina, in Brazil, and in the U.S. The democracy is at risk, and the movie is helping us to understand it. Then, from the missing in Argentina to the crisis of missing migrants trying to make it to Europe today. Over the last decade, tens of thousands of migrants have disappeared on the journey to Europe. A lot of them have drowned in the sea, um, and others have turned up on the shores of southern Europe and northern Africa. But they're often buried in unmarked graves, they're not named, they're not identified, and their families have no idea what happened to them. And very few people are trying to identify these migrants. All that and more, coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. Attorney General Merrick Garland has appointed a special counsel to investigate the mishandling of classified documents discovered at a former office used by President Biden and at Biden's home. Garland said Thursday former U.S. attorney Robert Hur will lead the investigation. I strongly believe that the normal processes of this department can handle all investigations with integrity. But under the regulations, the extraordinary circumstances here require the appointment of a special counsel for this matter. Garland's announcement came after Biden's lawyers reported they discovered a second batch of classified documents in the garage of Biden's home in Wilmington, Delaware, with one other record found in an adjacent room. On Thursday, Biden downplayed the incident, arguing the documents had been under lock and key. They discovered a small number of documents of classified markings and storage areas and file cabinets in my home and my and my 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 personal library. The Department of Justice was immediately uh, uh, notified and uh, the lawyers arranged for the Department of Justice to take possession of the document. Republicans on the House Oversight Committee have promised to launch their own investigation, accusing Biden and Democrats of a double standard in their treatment of former President Trump's mishandling of hundreds of classified documents found at his Mar-a-Lago residence in Florida. The governors of Alabama and Georgia have declared states of emergency after severe weather swept across southern states Thursday, killing at least seven people. The National Weather Service reported nearly three dozen tornadoes, including a large and extremely dangerous twister that caused significant damage to downtown Selma, Alabama. In California, officials have issued evacuation orders for low-lying areas of the Salinas River Valley, where floodwaters threatened to turn the Monterey Peninsula into an island. Island. Forecasters predict more heavy rain into next week.
A new study finds ocean temperatures surged to their highest level on record last year, and another clear sign that human activity is warming the planet. Researchers publishing in Advances in Atmospheric Sciences found the top two kilometers of ocean water gained about 10 zettajoules of heat energy in 2022, equivalent to 100 times the world's annual electrical power production. Warmer ocean temperatures are tied to heat waves, droughts, more powerful hurricanes, and extreme weather events like recent flooding in California. A new study in the journal Science confirms ExxonMobil was fully aware of the link between fossil fuel emissions and global heating, but spent decades refuting and obscuring the science in order to make maximum profit. The report finds Exxon, as early as the 70s, predicted with breathtaking accuracy the disastrous climate path that is now wreaking havoc across the globe. South Korean President Yoon Suk-yeol has said his country could build its own nuclear arsenal or ask for U.S. troops to redeploy if the nuclear threat from North Korea increases. It's the first time a South Korean leader raised such a prospect since the U.S. withdrew its nuclear arms from the South in 1991. The international campaign to abolish nuclear weapons said in response, quote, suggestions that rejecting agreed international law and norms to develop nuclear weapons are outrageous and must be globally condemned, adding more nuclear weapons into an already tense region is like pouring oil onto a grease fire, they said. Meanwhile, President Biden's meeting with Japanese Prime Minister Fumio Kishida at the White House today as the two nations reinforce their military cooperation in an effort to counter China's strength. Japan recently revised its longstanding pacifist position, building up its military capabilities amidst increasing regional tensions, including expanding its military base near Taiwan. China again warned this week against international interference in the issue of Taiwanese independence. A warning to our audience. The following story contains graphic footage and descriptions of police violence. The Los Angeles Police Department has released video showing the violent arrest of Keenan Anderson, a 31-year-old black school teacher and father who died just hours after his encounter with police January 3rd. The video shows officers tackling Anderson to the pavement in the middle of an intersection as he begged for his life, saying, they're trying to George Floyd me. They're trying to George Floyd me. Stop it. Stop it or I'm going to tase you. Okay, stop it or I'm going to tase you. Stop it or I'm going to tase you. Stop resisting. Please. Stop resisting. Please. 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 An officer electrocutes Anderson with a 30 taser, with a taser for 30 straight seconds nearly, as several others pin him to the ground face first. He's later tased again for five more seconds. Anderson was restrained and taken by ambulance to a hospital in Santa Monica, where police say he died four and a half hours later after suffering a cardiac arrest. The L.A. County Coroner's Office has not yet ruled on the cause of Anderson's death. His cousin is Black Lives Matter co-founder Patrice Cullors. After viewing the footage, she told The Guardian, quote, my cousin was scared for his life. He spent the last 10 years witnessing a movement challenging the killing of black people. He knew what was at stake, and he was trying to protect himself. Nobody was willing to protect him, she said. 
The United Nations is warning the United States Title 42 pandemic policy is a risk to international human rights and refugee laws and protections. Title 42 has been used to block over 2 million migrants from seeking asylum at the U.S.-Mexico border. Last week, the Biden administration announced it would also begin expelling Haitian, Cuban and Nicaraguan asylum seekers to Mexico as part of an expansion of the policy. U.N. High Commissioner for Human Rights, Volker Turk, said in a statement, quote, the right to seek asylum is a human right, no matter a person's origin, immigration status, nor how they arrived in an international border. These measures appear to be at variance with the prohibition of collective expulsion and the principle of non-reformment, unquote. Dozens of Democratic lawmakers urging President Biden to revoke the diplomatic visa being used by former Brazilian far-right President Jair Bolsonaro to remain in the U.S. after he fled Brazil just ahead of the inauguration of President Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva. Bolsonaro has been staying in Orlando, Florida, as he faces at least four criminal probes in Brazil. In their letter to Biden, more than 45 House Democrats said they're concerned by the attack on the Brazilian Supreme Court, Congress and Presidential Palace in the capital, Brasilia led by Bolsonaro's supporters January 8th. On Thursday, President Lula accused members of Brazil's military of complicity in letting the mob of Bolsonaro's supporters into the government buildings. It is important to say there were a lot of people who were complicit in this among the military police. There were many people from the armed forces who were complicit. I am convinced that the door to the palace was open to allow these people in, because I did not see that the door was broken. That is, it means that someone facilitated their entry here. We are going to investigate and see what happened. Two Democratic Congress members from New York introduced the Santos Act on Thursday to penalize congressional candidates who lie about their qualifications with a hefty fine and even possible jail time. The bill, which is an acronym for stopping another non-truthful office seeker, comes amidst mounting fallout over New York freshman Congress member, Republican George Santos, who fabricated large portions of his resume and life history before being elected. Republican House leaders have refused to hold Santos accountable. Local leaders where he lives have called for his resignation. Arkansas's new governor, Sarah Huckabee Sanders, signed an executive order on her first day in office this week banning the use of the term Latinx on official Arkansas government communications. Latinx is a gender non-binary term that is often used in place of Latino or Latina and is preferred by many as a more inclusive descriptor. Moderna has sparked backlash after announcing it would seek to increase the cost of its COVID-19 vaccine by four or five times once it becomes available in the commercial market. The U.S. government currently pays around $26 per dose. Senator Bernie Sanders slammed the news as he spoke on CNN this week. So the taxpayers of this country who put money into the vaccine in order to protect the health and lives of the American people are now creating billionaires in an industry, in a company, that it's going to quadruple prices for the American people. That is outrageous. That is unacceptable. And we've got to do something about that. And the World Health Organization's declared Uganda's worst Ebola outbreak in more than two decades is over. The four-month outbreak killed at least 55 people, including at least six health workers. This is the WHO's Dr. Jonas Tegan. This success is not only of Uganda. It's a global success and the global health community will learn and follow Uganda so that Ebola is not as scary, Ebola is not as devastating, 
as we used to know it. Oh, I have the, yeah. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. We begin today's show looking at the new film Argentina 1985 about the trial of the juntas, the civilian court that prosecuted Argentina's former military leaders for brutal crimes committed during the U.S.-backed right-wing military dictatorship from 1976 to 83. The film is based in part on the story of Julio Strasera and Luis Moreno Acampo, who prosecuted the Argentine general. So Acampo later became the first prosecutor of the International Criminal Court. He'll join us later in the show. Argentina 1985 has been shortlisted for an Oscar and just won a Golden Globe for Best Motion Picture in a non-English language. This is a part of the film director Santiago Mitre's acceptance speech at the Golden Globes. Uh, I want to share this for our, all the people who, since the dictatorship, have been fighting uh, to build a better democracy in Argentina, and, uh, and they keep on fighting, and, uh, well, I think democracy is something that we need to, well, it's, it, we need to keep on fighting for. Santiago Mitre, director of Argentina 1985. The film was also just awarded the NBR Freedom of Expression Award from the National Board of Review. Other winners of the awards included the famed director Steven Spielberg and the film Top Gun Maverick. In a moment, we'll be joined by Santiago Mitre. But first, let's turn to the trailer of Argentina 1985. You will be the prosecutor in the most important trial in Argentine history. I was abducted from my home. They kept me a prisoner for months. Since the Nuremberg trials, the responsibility of command lies with the juntas. We must prove they knew about it. No country has dared to prosecute a dictatorship. This is our opportunity. Be careful, Julio. Be careful. Until Argentina, 1985. You're sending Videla to jail? All of those responsible. There's little time. You won't pull this alone. How many trials have you worked? None. 90% of the judiciary staff does not want to get involved. 99%. I think we need to look elsewhere. Where? Kids? Yes. If the seniors won't do it, then we bring the juniors in. Inspired by a true story, we need to prove it was a systematic plan, that it was across the country, during the governments of all the commanders. They disappeared people everywhere. They are responsible. This is about what the country needs. This fall... What are you afraid of? Everything. Of this being a trap, of something happening to any of you. True courage. They broke into our home, and the trial is in an hour. Cannot be intimidated. Your Honor, all I want to know is if my daughter is dead or alive. Slowly, so that we wouldn't notice, the machinery of horror unleashed its inequity over the unaware and the innocent. History was not made by guys like me. 
That's the trailer for Argentina 1985. Well, on Thursday, Democracy Now!'s Nermeen Sheikh and I spoke to the film's director, Santiago Mitre, just after he had won the Golden Globe. I began by asking him what it means at an international level for Argentina 1985 to win that award on the way to the Oscars. Well, it was a amazing and a, few, a, few, a huge honor, of course, uh, uh, the Golden Globe Award and, and the honor of being shortlisted in the Oscar amplifies the, the reach out of the film, uh, which is an incredible thing, not only because it means that many people across the globe are going to watch it, uh, but because uh, these people, especially young generations who are uh, the ones we are we are trying to to reach the most, uh, like the movie does itself, well, can we'll be able to have conversations about the impact of the film, about its relevance, about the, the situation of democracy, and about the fragility of democracy nowadays, which I think it's one of the things that we need to care about a lot. Santiago Mitre, you were yourself just a young boy when this trial was taking place in 1985. Explain why you wanted to make a film on it, how you decided to do that, and then how you went about conducting the research. This was one of the most significant events in Argentine's political history, Argentina's political history. Yeah, it's—I it's, it's, um, mean, the— I, I had a lot of admiration of the trial, uh, for the trial. Um, it's a, it's a major event because of the, the context it was done. It was only one year after the, the dictatorship ended, and the, um, the militaries were still very powerful and very frightening. All the region uh, was still governed by uh, military dictatorships. So the decision of the government to do this trial was very brave and very important, and it founded, it founded the basis of, uh, of the new democracy. The prosecutors, the judges were brave on doing this because it's something, it was something risky. We didn't know where, where they didn't know where, where it was going to end. Uh, and, and, and among all the, the, the witnesses who were, uh, who, who were, who survived to the concentration camps or the, and the families that, uh, well, they, they, they fight and, and, and try to, uh, bring truth during during the dictatorship and try to ask for the, for where their 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 relatives were, uh, and and sat down and gave testimony while most of the people who run the repressive system were still free. Well, I, I think the, the, the trial had so many layers and so many things worthy of being told uh, nowadays uh, to the Argentinian. Audiences were were starting to forget about this 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 event, and to the audiences of the world uh, who could be interested on 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 the subjects that the film was was bring could bring uh, justice, democracy uh, is something that, that one of the topics that I think we need to be discussing the most nowadays. Uh, well, because of what's happening all over the world. And the war in Ukraine, what just happened one week before in in, in Brazil with the attempt of coup d'état to to Lula, uh, well, the January six here, uh, what I was so and so many places were were too much, too many anti-democratic uh, speeches are growing all over the world. 
And, and Santiago Mitre, you, um, for people who don't know, um, uh, you know, the history of this period, the period of these successive uh, military juntas from 1976 to 1983, and what exactly happened during the so-called dirty war, could you just give us some, some background of, of what was happening then? Yeah, the, um, well, it was part of the late Cold War, let's say. Uh, the, 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 the Argentina had 100 years of uh, history of alternation between one democratic government who would not be ended th- uh, to a military government. This uh, military government was the most uh, terrible one that, that happened in history because it shot uh, killed and disappeared uh, as a system uh, to all the citizens who were against them uh, uh, politically or being suspected or of being against them. Uh, the, the, um, they disappeared over three thousand people uh, during during those years and killed some more. Uh, well, it it was I mean it was a, a, an awful dictatorship and an awful moment to, to live in to live in that country and very frightening. Santiago, you have said I'm convinced of fiction's capacity to transmit reality. You decided to make this not a documentary, um, though you did use verbatim the testimony of the victims, the heart-rending, utterly painful testimony of the victims at the trial. Um, but you, for example, Ricardo Darín, one of the most famous Argentine uh, actors, uh, plays um, plays uh, uh, Julio Stracera, um, becomes him, in a sense, even though they don't actually look alike. Talk about that choice to make this dramatic feature film. I believe I believe that fiction is uh, probably the best vehicle to tell the truth, uh, and I did a very long uh, research uh, for many years. I tried to spoke to most of the people who were who did the trial uh, or who participated in the trial, uh, journalists who, who who were covering the trial for the for the, um, for the newspapers, uh, witnesses, families of witnesses. Um, all the prosecutorial team, Luis Moreno Campo itself, uh, the, the the judges, people from the government. I re- I, I read everything. The testimonies could not. Uh, I, I don't know why. I think it was a thing that I have from my ethics as a filmmaker. I, I couldn't change a word from the from the from what was said during the hearings. The importance that this film transmitted so much truth. I think it was 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 one of was one of my goals. So uh, I, I we, luckily we were able to shoot in the real courtroom where the where the trial happened. For so many years we were we were not we were, when we wanted to watch images of the trial of the juntas, we were not being able to watch the faces uh, of the people who were giving testimony. And and for me the possibility of recreating this gave me that. Like, okay, we can see the faces and we can try to imagine the pain, the anger, what they were feeling at the moment they were, they were giving testimony. And Santiago, at the time, do you remember what was, or from what you've heard, obviously, as you said, you were a child when the trials actually occurred and your mother was involved in justice. So obviously you were more familiar with it than most. What was the impact that this trial had, the trial which was publicly accessible? And of course, there was a, a large public that, that saw the, that was there present at the trial. 
trial. What was the impact uh, on society at large, people who knew very little of what had been happening? What was the response? Yeah, it's, 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 it's very interesting because um, everybody, the president Alfonsin won uh, because he, he said he wanted to do the trial. But but uh, and, and 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 he he promised something and then he did it, which was uh, something that not many politicians do. Uh, but at the same time, society uh, were afraid of the trial. In a way, they wanted to try, but they were afraid. They were afraid that a coup d'état could happen. So it was uh, like a tense situation. It was a big box of uh, amplification, this trial, that uh, made uh, the people conscious on, of what they have done and about uh, how important it was that, that we all as a society fight for a democracy. Actually, some months after the, the trial ended, uh, some rebellions in, um, in, mari- in military uh, Quarteles, I don't know the word in English, like forts or military places all over the country started. And the people massively went out to the streets uh, to to protect uh, this democracy. Tell us, Santiago, about the um, extras in this film. I mean, you use the verbatim testimony, but of course, actors and actresses of the victims. Um, in one of your showings here in New York, you talked in the Q&A about the woman who had was forced to give birth alone. Tell us her story and the reaction of the extras behind. Yeah, well, it, 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 it's one of the Probably more the, the testimonies that has more uh, pain in it. It's, it's terrible. It was a physician who was called Adriana Calvo de la Borde who was uh, forced to give birth uh, uh, handcuffed, handcuffed, dice, like, uh, handcuffed in the back of a police car, and they didn't let her grab his uh, his uh, daughter who was just born. Uh, well, and we were doing that testimony. For that, for me, it was it was one of the main testimonies during during a sequence, and and I worked a lot with the actress uh, to get the right tone, uh, similar to to the real Adriana, but with uh, with with her own deepness, and 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 we cut her hair with her clothes were exactly the same because we were mixing this footage uh, with. Uh, with uh, our footage, with the original uh, footage from the from the trial, and we did a scene like uh, well, we were all crying because of being there, listening to to that 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 uh, testimony in the same courtroom. It was like uh, well, yeah, too, super powerful. And in the first takes, we were all, since the first takes, we were all crying. It was impossible not to cry. But but then cinema, it's. Uh, Difficult, and sometimes directors we get um, too obsessed with uh, silly stuff, and we were repeating the scene many times and doing different angles. And there was one person in the in the audience that was crying uh, since the first shot, and kept on crying after the um, midday. And we were keep we keep on we keep shooting, and he was keep on trying, and I didn't understand what was going on with this man. Uh, so at some point we did a pause, and the actress went out. Uh, Went out the set, and the, and, the, and this man uh, approached her and told her he used to study with uh, with a real Adriana uh, Calvo de la Borde in the university, and he, and he thanked her for letting letting him watch her or see her friend again. 
of course the actress started to cry <laughs> again like uh, massively and she told me and i was like uh, this is this film is going to be very intense and uh, and i was crying again too and um, and during the film we had like many situations like that because it, it's it's very difficult that someone uh in my country does not have a relation to someone or who suffered one of these uh horrors uh that uh, well that this dictatorship did to the country Santiago there's a moment in the film in the courtroom where the prosecutors go up to the mothers of the disappeared who are there with their famous white kerchiefs and they've been told uh, by the judge by the defense team for the generals that these women must take off their kerchiefs um, because they're seen as banners. Everyone knows what they mean. Very touching moment. Can you talk about the role of the grassroots movements, these women who marched in the Plaza de Mayo week after week to dramatize the stories of the disappeared, their children, their grandchildren, and the Truth Commission of Argentina? Yes, um, the Madre de Plaza de Mayo were one of the main institutions and one of the true heroes uh, uh, of the fighting for democracy during the dictatorship. They risked themselves fighting and, and asking for the for the for where their their children were. Also, the families of the kidnaps were, were but the, but the, but the mothers and the abuelas, uh, the, the grandmothers, they keep uh, they keep uh, doing an enormous uh, social work in terms of memory, but with a huge impact in the present. Just 10 days ago, they they uh, could rescue one uh, boy who was kidnapped uh, during the dictatorship, and they they find uh, his identity and they could he could recover his identity and understand who his father his father were and, and it's it's the 150 uh, case or something like that i don't remember the exact number so uh, and there's many more many 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 babies that were born during the kidnaps and they were during the kidnaps of their father and then they were kidnapped they kidnapped by fake families uh <clears throat> And uh, related to the military, sometimes uh, or even militaries, uh, and, and and it's and it's a fight that the the, the abuelas keep on doing uh, uh, massively. So so we are, I mean, I, I love I love them so much, and I think they are uh, such an, uh, an important uh, emblem uh, for our country. And uh, Santiago Mitre, finally, what do you hope audiences around the world uh, will learn from this film? But that you never have to take democracy for granted, and with justice is the best way to consolidate democracy. And and uh, and 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 we all, as citizens, would need to to get involved. Get involved. It's not to not to not necessarily to fight, but at least to discuss and to see that uh, there's a problem growing growing uh, all over the world. Uh, I mean, for me, that I do uh, political films. Uh, one of my mess, my, my the best uh, things that ha- can happen with the film. I think it's like that people after watching the film they don't discuss only the film. That they try to to watch uh, and they try to watch and try to think about the problems uh, on their own societies. 
Santiago Mitre, director of the new film Argentina 1985, streaming on Amazon Prime. It's been shortlisted for an Oscar, just won a Golden Globe for Best Motion Picture in a Non-English Language. The film is based in part on Luis Moreno Acampo, who prosecuted the Argentine generals. He'll join us in a minute. El sueño acabó Ya no hay morsas Ni tortugas Canción de Alicia in El País by Seru Hiran. The song was released in 1980 in Argentina and contained veiled criticism of the military dictatorship. Alicia is referring to Alice in Wonderland. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. We're continuing to look at the new film Argentina 1985 about the trial of the juntas, the civilian court that prosecuted Argentina's former military leaders for brutal crimes committed during the U.S.-backed right-wing military dictatorship from 70 to 1983. The film, based in part on the story of Julio Stracera and Luis Moreno Acampo, who prosecuted the Argentine military leaders. Ocampo later became the first prosecutor of the International Criminal Court. This is a short excerpt from the film about their struggle to find a legal team willing to investigate crimes committed during the military dictatorship. We need to look elsewhere. Where? Law school? Not exactly, but in that direction. At the attorney general's office, there are kids willing to work with us. Kids? Yes, in every court. We need young people with less experience. Less than you? If the seniors won't do it, then we bring the juniors in. An excerpt from the film Argentina 1985. Earlier this week, I spoke to the former Argentine prosecutor, Luis Moreno Ocampo, who's portrayed in the film. I began by asking him about the significance of this part of the film. Well, my job was to investigate the crimes. And we, the, the Truth Commission in my country, identified the victims. So I don't need lawyers doing legal arguments. I need people with empathy for the victims. That's why I was thinking young people will be better. And Julio accepted. Estracera agreed with me. And then we built a team of very young people from 20. The younger was 20 and the older was 27. So that was, was amazing. In four months, we were able to, to produce the evidence needed to convict the generals. So 
Talk about that. Talk about what happened, um, how it was that you came, along with Julio Stracera, who is no longer alive today, to prosecute the generals and ultimately put several of them in prison uh, for life. Well, Julio was the prosecutor in charge. He needed help. And we knew each other from the university, so he invited me to support him. And he gave me the task. I need to lead the investigation. And we cannot use the police, because the police was involved in the crimes. So what we did, we used the victims to produce the evidence. So the Truth Commission identified the victims. We first select the best cases. Then we call the victims, the survivors, asking more details. Who saw, who watched you when you were abducted? There was habeas corpus or, or criminal proceedings. So we collect all these documents and prove well the abduction. Then the victim told us about their own torture and how they watch other people being tortured. And then we show the killings showing people who were abducted before and then appear dead. And the army recognized they killed them, but they invented they was they killed them in a in a in a fight, in a battle. And we show it was a fake battle, so these people were abducted before. In this way, in four months, with this group of young kids who were just meeting the victims, meeting the people, receiving them in the office, we produced the evidence. We produced 2,000 witnesses in four months. And that transformed the, the case, because the, the witness testimonies ex transformed the perception of the of what happened during the dictatorship. And for those who are not familiar with the history of Argentina and the so-called dirty war, if you can take us back to the time of the coup that led to the disappearances, torture, rape of so many Argentines from the late 70s into the early 80s, and then how you came at this moment in 85 to be able to prosecute those who led this coup? Well, uh, Argentina in the 70s had guerrilla groups, uh, but in 73, with democracy was back. But the guerrillas were still fighting, and there were uh, right-wing groups fighting. So people was absolutely afraid of violence. And in a country with 50 years of coup d'etat, people were supporting the idea of the army in charge of the government to control violence. And that's why in 76, when the military junta took power, they were supported. My mother supported them brutally, totally. So, but in 1983, when democracy was back, one of the candidates, Alfonsine, proposed to investigate the generals. In a country with 50 years of coup d'etat, no democratic government ended its term for 50 years. And Alfonsine said, look, we need to end this coup d'etat cycle. We need to investigate the generals. And people support him. 52% of people support him. And that's why the trial happened. This was this political environment. And then when the, we prosecuted the generals, after they were tried some military mutants, but people reacted and said, no, 
So basically, the impact of the junta trial was not just unveil the crimes committed by dictators, was transforming democracy. People feel democracy is my system, I will protect it. And that's why the film, Santiago Mitre film, is so important, because 40 years later, the new generations, the young kids, are learning about this through the movie. So as a prosecutor, I had to prevent future crimes. And Santiago Mitre is doing that 40 years later. That's why honor Santiago Mitre. Luis Moreno Acampo, according to State Department documents that were released in 2004, almost 20 years ago, then-Secretary of State Henry Kissinger and Argent told the Argentine uh, foreign minister, if there are things that have to be done, you should do them quickly. We won't cause you unnecessary difficulties. Explain what he was talking about, because the majority of the people who died in Argentina or were disappeared were in those early years. We're talking about tens of thousands of people. What did the U.S. have to do with it? Well, Argentina was the battlefield of the Cold War. The Cold War was cold in the north, but it was hot in the south. And Argentina was one of the hottest places. So that's why Kissinger was saying, OK, they are basically the dictators in South America were proxy forces for U.S. to control guerrillas. But interestingly, Jimmy Carter came later and Jimmy Carter was trying to use human rights against Soviet Union. And then to be consistent, he also attacked Argentina. So Jimmy Carter became the biggest enemy for Argentine dictatorship. So is the people in the U.S. have to understand U.S. foreign policy has impact, positive or negative. And, and we, I don't think from U.S. we are watching that. And Henry Kissinger? No, Henry Kissinger was basically supporting the idea of the armies in the South control the guerrillas. As today, we are happy that the armies in, in Egypt, in different places, control al-Qaeda and Islamic terrorism. It's the same. We are in a new Cold War. And we need to, that's why Argentina in 1985 is not just on the past, it's on the future. And if you can talk about the role of the mothers of the disappeared in Argentina, when Democracy Now! went down to Argentina and broadcast, um, we went to the plaza where the mothers um, marched. And there is this moving scene in the film where, um, where Prosecutor Stracera turns to the women in the courtroom uh, and asks them— not exactly directly, to take off their scarves, because the judges said you could not have banners in the room, and they wore these scarves around their heads that said they were the mothers of the disappeared. And you saw it broke his heart to say this. Well, that's real. That historically happened. Both of us were asking the mother to remove the scarf. But it's about fair trials. The judges were trying to be sure no one can complain they were biased. And that is very, very important, because it's not just the trial was effective. It was fair. It was fair. The, the defendants have the rights. They present evidence. And the judges were trying to show doubt, impartiality. And I think that is part of the legacy that the movie is showing.
The movie is showing a f not just the horrors, the movie is also showing a fair trial. And it's in more important, it's not just a court film, it's showing the impact of the court in society. And that is the beauty of the film by Santiago Mitre. Santiago is using families, my family, a military family, a Stracera family, a normal family, and the victim family to show the impact of the lack of flu in Argentina. Luis, I want to get to that. Your family, you mentioned your mother. Uh, she was a supporter of Videla, the general. She went to church, the same church as Videla. And you used her as a monitor, a barometer of how Argentina was responding to the trial that they could actually watch? Well, the, the, in those days, as Santiago explained, the, the, the scenes were without sound. So my mother was reading the newspaper. My mother read the most conservative newspaper in the country, but the, the paper, the newspaper was showing what happened. And my mother, exactly the day after Adriana Calvo de la Borde testified, my mother, at the movie show, called me. She said something nicer. She said, I still love General Videla, but you are right. He has to go to jail. So that's what she said. So my monitor failed very, very early. So that's why we keep—because for me, we need to convince people like my mother, who did not like the trial, people who were supporting Videla. That was, for me, the target. The movie, in some way, is doing that. The movie is reaching 100 percent of the people. You know, in, in one month, the movie was watched by, by one million people. The president, the vice president of the country are talking about the movie. So the movie tran transformed the memory of the country. Luis Moreno Acampo, we are speaking to you in the midst of uh, Brazil's January 6th. It's January 8th, to be exact, on Sunday. Thousands of um, the far-right former president, uh, Jair Bolsonaro, supporters overrunning the Capitol, the uh, Capitol building, the Supreme Court, the presidential palace. Your thoughts on parallels to what happened in Argentina 40 years ago? Well, the most clear part is what happened in the U.S. two years ago. No, that's the most clear three years ago. So I think democracy is at risk everywhere. So because social media transforming the memory and understanding. So we need to understand that. That's why the movie is not just about Argentina in 1985. The movie is about avoid Argentina 1976 in Argentina, so I, the movie is about, about dictatorships in Argentina, in Brazil, and in the U.S. The democracy is at risk, and the movie is helping us to understand it. Former Argentine prosecutor Luis Moreno Ocampo, who's portrayed in the new film Argentina 1985, Ocampo later became the first prosecutor of the International Criminal Court. The film is streaming at Amazon Prime. It's shortlisted for an Oscar. Coming up, we go from the missing in Argentina to the crisis of missing migrants trying to make it to Europe today. Stay with us. Run around, run away from your America while it burns in the streets. I've been here standing on top of the mountain, shouting down what I see. Seen the pig with the pot, but a confusion that he tried to release. Seen the sun coming over the horizon, straight across from the east. Seen the kings and the soldiers, all the throne they consume. Wanna tell it to everybody on the ground, freedom is coming soon. 
dispossession by Algiers. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. United Nations, European Parliament and many leading human rights groups are condemning Greece for putting on trial 24 volunteer rescue workers who helped save thousands of migrants fleeing violence, poverty and persecution. The Greek government has accused 24 individuals connected to the group Emergency Response Center International of smuggling for giving life-saving assistance to migrants who are trying to reach Europe. A spokesperson for the U.N. High Commissioner for Human Rights said, quote, trials like this are deeply concerning because they criminalize life-saving work and set a dangerous precedent. Indeed, there's already been a chilling effect with human rights defenders and humanitarian organizations forced to halt their human rights work in Greece and other EU countries, unquote. A European Parliament report described the trial as Europe's, quote, largest case of criminalization of solidarity. This comes as a new article in The New Yorker has just been published titled The Crisis of Missing Migrants, which examines what's become of the tens of thousands of people who've disappeared on the way to Europe. It's written by staff writer Alexis Okeowo. She's joining us now. Uh, welcome to Democracy Now! It's great to have you with us, Alexis. If you could start off by talking about the significance of this trial. Yeah, I mean, the trial reminded me a lot of what's happening in Italy, which is mostly where I reported this article, where Italy has criminalized um, aid ships who have wanted to rescue migrants in the sea. It's also... Um, encouraged uh, Italian naval authorities, Coast Guard, not to rescue people um, to the point that Italian naval officials have been charged for not rescuing migrants in the sea. And it's just, as you said, part of this disturbing trend of criminalizing life-saving actions to vulnerable people um, and making even it more risky for people trying to make it over the sea to Europe and increasing the likelihood that they will die. Alexis, in your article, you write, over the past decade, the Mediterranean Sea and the shores of Italy, Malta, Cyprus and Greece have become a vast graveyard, with at least 25,000 have disappeared in the crossing and are presumed dead. Can you lay out the scope of this problem and tell us the story of how it impacts people like the woman you spoke to named Alme and her son Yafet? These are such poignant, powerful stories. Absolutely. I mean, 25,000, which is the estimate of the amount of people, the number of people who have disappeared on their way to Europe is actually a very conservative estimate. It's likely much more. But, I mean, over the last decade, at least 25,000 people have disappeared on their way to Europe, mostly while crossing the Mediterranean. Now, a lot of those bodies are at the bottom of the sea. They drowned. But some do turn up on the shores of southern Europe, of northern Africa, and usually they're just buried in unmarked graves. They're not named, they're not identified, and their families don't really know what happened to them. They can guess, but they don't know. And so when I met this young woman, Alma, who's from Eritrea, um, it really brought into stark relief what this means on a human level. She had left uh, the repressive regime in Eritrea, and then again in Sudan, and took a boat from Libya, risked her life to get to Europe, and then settled in Germany. And she had left her young son behind. He was, you know, he was only eight years old. 
she didn't want him to risk his life across the sea. And she assumed that she would be able to bring him to Germany when she settled. But because the father of her son had died in a shipwreck in 2013, also making his way from Libya to Italy, um, he died in a shipwreck in Lampedusa, but no one knows where his body is. Um, it hasn't been identified. She was told that because she can't prove the father of her son died, she can't bring her son to, to Europe. And this is a common problem. Um, migrants whose uh, partners have passed find it hard to remarry because they can't get a death certificate. They find it hard to inherit property. They find it hard to bring their children to join them. And this is often because, you know, the the the, the the parents of the child are in the sea or they've turned up in places like Italy and have just been buried unnamed. Um, and while there are some efforts to identify these bodies, like a lab that I spent time with in Milan, these efforts aren't really funded. They're not really supported and they're not really coordinated on a continent wide level in Europe. And so tell us what happens with Alma and her son, for years, uh, she didn't see him, though they talked yeah. on FaceTime almost every day. Yeah, absolutely. So Alma, after almost nearly a decade, she got in touch with the, the lab in Milan, where I spent time. And they have been working on identifying hundreds of bodies from a few shipwrecks in Italy. Alma believed that the father of her son was in one of those shipwrecks. And so for almost a year, they were coordinating to get the DNA from her son to see if it matched any of the samples that have been taken from the shipwrecks. Um, unfortunately, it didn't. So that can mean he was in another shipwreck or he was at the bottom of the sea. Um, but now, because it's been almost a decade since the father of her son disappeared, she can try to apply with a claim of presumed death and hopefully get him to come that way. You know, now he's he's a teenager. Um, but... It's just a heartbreaking situation. You know, she's been in Germany for almost a decade, hasn't seen her son in person, only through FaceTime. And she told me, you know, I know the father of my son has died, but no one will believe me and no one will give me an answer as to what happened to him. And this is something, you know, the scientists at the lab I spent with in Milan told me every person deserves to know whether their, their loved one is alive or dead. But it seems like some people are more deserving than others, because when bodies do turn up in Southern Europe, there's no effort by the state or the police or any authority to give a name to these people and to give them some humanity so their families know what happened. You write 13 percent of the bodies of migrants who died on journeys between 2014 and 19 have been recovered, according to estimates. The rest are still at the bottom of the Mediterranean or decomposing in North African deserts. What needs to happen to um, not only recover these bodies, but uh, to prevent people from dying? And talk about how large some of these ships are, containing what sometimes between 500 and 1,000 people. Absolutely. So there, there are two lines of thought. One is that for those 13 percent of bodies that we do have, um, we can have Malta, Greece, Italy, the places where most of the bodies turn up, actually, you know, uh, take DNA samples, take photographs, put this in a database that all European countries can, can access so that there's a way for families to identify their loved ones. 
Um, and then, like Italy has done once before, you know, recover the boats from the sea. Um, you know, it can be expensive, but it is doable. Uh, so many boats just drop to the bottom of the sea and that's it. You know, it's, it's like they're forgotten. And there is a way to deal with that. And then, you know, as I talked with the International Committee of the Red Cross, for the people who don't have bodies, there is a way to interview survivors, interview smugglers, reach out to the communities from which the passengers came in order to devise a probable passenger manifest so that you can at least families know this is probably what happened. Someone saw or knew that your loved one was on this boat and they didn't make it. You know, there, there is a way to do that. And there have been efforts to do that, but with not much support. Because, you know, for example, um, some of these shipwrecks have just been atrocious. You know, there was a there was one in 2015 where it was basically like a, a large fishing boat, like 20 meters crammed with a thousand people. Uh, there were people under the floorboards, young people under the floorboards, people under the hull. You know, the scientists working on it later said it reminded her of a slave ship. You know, the way people were packed on there, people had to pay extra for life jackets after already paying, you know, some two thousand dollars just to board the boat. So it's so inhumane the way people are are being forced to cross to Europe. And that is, by the way, because there are not safer migrant crossings. There are not more open migrant routes. You know, we're forcing migrants to do this, to to flee oppression and to flee so many circumstances in this inhumane way, then a lot of them don't a lot of them don't survive, and then there's not even the dignity given to their dead bodies, given to their families to identify who they were. And do any countries keep databases? Not really. I mean, the the country that has done the most again is Italy because they have this lab. But they, it's, it's not really enough. It's a very, you know, it's a university lab but staffed by a lot of volunteers doing this on their own time. These Southern European countries have vowed to, you know, they promised, they said, we're going to do a database, but none of them have submitted any info yet. And finally, when you talk about the reason migrants come, try to leave as they flee persecution, violence, poverty— Yeah, I mean, so, yeah, a lot of them are freeing repression, um, violence, economic uh, circumstances, poverty, and also climate change, um, drought, extreme weather. Their ways of life have just become unlivable in a lot of the places they're leaving. And so you know, often no one caused really... by the countries they are fleeing exactly. to that are trying to prevent them from coming in. Exactly, exactly. And a lot of them don't want to leave. You know, they don't want to leave their communities, their homes, their parents, their children. And yet they do. You know, it's astounding to me the the, the you know, the, the extent to which people risk their lives to get to Europe, only to be to die or be turned away. Alexis Okeowo, I want to thank you so much for being with us. Staff writer for The New Yorker and author, their latest piece for The New Yorker is headlined, The Crisis of Missing Migrants. What has become of the tens of thousands of people who've disappeared on their way 
to Europe. We'll link to it at democracynow.org. And a fond farewell to our remarkable video fellow, Mary Conlon. Thank you for all you've contributed to at Democracy Now! It's always been an honor to work with you. Now you are forever a part of our DNA. That's Democracy Now! alumni. And that does it for our show. Democracy Now! produced with Renee Feltz, Mike Burke, Dina Geister, Messiah Rhodes, Nermeen Sheikh, Maria Tarasena, Tammy Warner, Tarina Nadura, Sam Alcoff, Tamari Astu, Joe John Hamilton, Robbie Karen. I'm Amy Goodman. Thank you so much.